Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Open to Daniel chapter 3. Toto, we're not in. Ah. But you got to Texas as soon as you could. Uh-huh. Here's looking at you, kid. One of my favorite lines. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do ya, punk? <laughs> I'm your Huckleberry. And one last one, you got to get this one right. Hasta la vista. All right, very good. Those kind of quotes help us, might help us to remember a situation and a story we once heard where someone was trying to do right, or at least thought they were doing right, with no matter of the consequences of that statement or their actions to follow. Also helps us to remember stories that are familiar to us, such as what we find in Daniel chapter 3. There are many that are familiar with the story of the fiery furnace in the Old Testament, and I don't want to assume, though, that everybody's familiar with this story, um, but this is one of the well-known stories of the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It can be so familiar to us that we sometimes might even forget it's there until it comes back up again on a Sunday morning. But these three young men stand for their trust in Christ, excuse me, for their trust in their Lord. Uh, It's not Christ yet, but it will be uh, eventually. And even uh, though it would possibly cost them their lives, possibly even... Uh, in a fiery death, which was certain based on what King Nebuchadnezzar had said. Not possibly, I shouldn't say possibly, certainly would end their life. So if you would stand with me in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 7 this morning, and we're actually going to work our way all the way through it, but we'll just read these first seven together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image, you've got it by now, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Lord, thank you for your word being opened before us this morning. It is my prayer that you will empower your people to hear and understand what it says. Believe its truth and walk in obedience while trusting you because your faithfulness endures forever, especially through the fire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Friends, we will, as God's people, be confronted and criticized by the idols and accusations of this world. What you find at the beginning of the story is that a fixed image does not inspire the faithful. It will not inspire the faithful to bow down to an idol. Here we are in chapter 3 on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. In the middle of the exile that has been in place now for some time as we've read through the Old Testament. In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream and he had been searching for someone to interpret that dream. No one would dare answer that, or try to even begin to interpret that dream. But there was one man named Daniel who served a God, uh, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the great I am, the God of Israel. And he had heard that King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. God set it in place for Daniel to be able to interpret that dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And in that dream, it is told to King Nebuchadnezzar that he would establish a great image. And on the top of that image would be made of gold. Further down you go, though, the image is, is a lesser kingdom and a lesser kingdom and a lesser kingdom made of lesser materials until you get to the bottom, which was going to be made of stone. And in that dream, out of that stone is the one that's where this all points back to Christ, who is the cornerstone, rejected by men, but is the chief capstone or cornerstone of the church, the foundation of God's kingdom. Well... Chapter 3, the motion is set in place with this dream, and now King Nebuchadnezzar, sometime later, is going to establish this great image where he has set it up for all to come and to worship him. He set out to establish himself as a world power. In the translation of the measurements given to us today, this is a 90-foot tower and about 9 feet in circumference. It is an image that is meant to impress, to inspire, and to worship. Inspire unity amongst the people and inspire worship amongst the people. King Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of chapter 2, does pay homage to Daniel and Daniel's God by offering up an offering and some incense. But what he offers up in that moment is shallow and it's on the surface. His heart is not changed His heart is only more focused on himself after chapter 2 going into chapter 3. And that shallow and surface worship of God, my friends, will not rescue you from anything. Jesus calls us to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And when your worship is shallow and on the surface, that's about as far as the east is from the west if you compare it to truth and in spirit. 
The author continues on to great lengths. He goes to great lengths to help us understand the nature and the extent of the idolatry that's taking place in Daniel's time as as it is written with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego specifically in chapter 3. He goes to such great lengths that he he uses repetition. You've noticed as you helped me read that. He goes to great lengths to show us the nature and the extent of that idolatry. Ten times. The word statue is used. That phrase, the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In verses 2 and 3, you're given a a who's who list of those coming from Babylon to gather and and worship. All the, the, the officials of the land, all the peoples of the land, the who's who, have been gathered and summoned by Nebuchadnezzar to worship this great image. If you didn't catch it, there's a lot of satire in chapter 3 going into especially the opening phrases. And as often as those phrases are repeated in this story, it's intended for satire to help us see King Nebuchadnezzar's folly and his foolishness. And it also serves as a great signal. Hey, pay attention to this. This is something we need to, to pull out. It's also worth mentioning the passage makes it abundantly clear, like I just said, that Nebuchadnezzar set this up. He is the one that is pitting himself against the God of all creation, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the great I am. There is no doubt who set this up. It wasn't Daniel working behind the scenes or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trying to cause a downfall in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, kingdom. It wasn't somebody else. It was King Nebuchadnezzar who set this up. There's one little last tidbit of context for what's happening here in chapter 3. And that's the question of, do you know where they are? Do you know the location of where they are in Babylon, in this general area? Do you know what happened in this area? Another well-known story of the Old Testament is the Tower of Babel. This is that same general location where the Tower of Babel was erected. You'll remember or I'll remind you what those people said at that time. Now, at that time, there are no spread out people groups. Everybody's together. They're all speaking one language. This is where God sends them out after this tower is done and fallen. He sends them out. And they're all speaking different languages. They don't understand one another. The people begin to spread out over the earth. But in that moment, as they begin to build that tower, this is what they said. Let us make a name for ourselves and build this great tower. There were two issues with that tower. One, it was an attempt by the people of the time to make a name for themselves and to leave a lasting legacy. Two, it was an attempt to keep people from scattering over all the earth. Unity. The two issues with the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar has erected here in chapter 3. One, it's an attempt to establish his legacy. A testimony to his glory. That glory... He is trying to take from God. And scripture, friends, clearly says God will not share his glory with another. So he's putting himself against the God of creation, the great I am. Second, he's doing it to provide unity for his kingdom. Friends, idols will continue and do continue to confront us today. We are told to bow down to them daily. It's such folly, though. It's such foolishness. King Nebuchadnezzar brought out all the instruments, commands all the people to fall down when they hear the music and the worship. I mean, we've got a piano. We normally have a guitar here. We've got Andy's guitar. We've had bass guitars in the past. We've got drums. These are our instruments that we have. 
And when we begin to hear him, we begin to know, like, we know it's time to sing. We know it's time to worship. He's got quite the, the impressive list here. Most of these I, I'd not be able to play. I'd love to hear a bagpipe sometime in our worship, having a Scottish heritage. Um, I love that instrument, although it would sound quirky in South Texas. I know that. That's okay with you. You don't have to listen to it. Um, but we got all of these things happening, all the instruments, all the people fall down. When you hear the music, that's the cue. Fall down and worship this great, colossal, architectural wonder that's nothing but an idol, that's deaf and mute and has no power whatsoever. But the catch here in the story is that failure to worship the idol Failure to bow down and pay homage to Nebuchadnezzar's God. Failure to give yourself over to this new religious way of thinking that is socially acceptable would bring and invite severe punishment. That punishment, as Nebuchadnezzar said, is to be placed into the fiery furnace. That furnace is a brick kiln. They would have them over the land in different places. That's how they built their structures. They had to form and, and, and fire the bricks so that it would be sturdy and, and secure in their building. Keep in mind, one of the oft-repeated words of this passage is worship. Eleven times, the author brings it to light. That was his goal, the worship of the tower. I don't think it's an image of Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's an image of the Babylonian god Marduk. God is pit, uh, Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is pitting himself and the Babylonian god against the god of Israel. What we have here in King Nebuchadnezzar and all of those that are coming around him, propping him up as a king, supporting him as a king, what we have here is what we still have in our hearts today. It's a problem of the heart. We as humanity have attempted from Babel to Babylon, even to our day, to rise to the level of God. Even in our day, what we see is that maybe our social media platforms would rise to the level of God. Maybe that we want our opinions to rise to the level of God-like opinions. Proverbs 29 19 and 20 says, as, water, as in water face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. That gets at the heart of idolatry. It gets at the heart of who we are. It gets at the heart of who Nebuchadnezzar was. His eyes would never be satisfied. I love that old line out of that hymn, prone to wonder. Not wonder, wander, prone to leave the God I love. That describes us. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. And we, name, we, we are certainly not confronted the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are confronted here in chapter 3 by Nebuchadnezzar in the fiery furnace. But you can be certain, my friend, that the idols of our day present themselves routinely, daily, maybe even minute by minute. Some of them are in our pockets, our phones, our social media accounts, our TVs, our families, our homes, our jobs. Others may be where we give allegiance or preference to. Some are very public and others are very quiet and private. Oh, but we're so, so much more sophisticated than Babylon. 
But friends, we are exiles in a land that is not our home. Friends, idols can be very seductive because of that. So good are they at taking our eyes and our heart off the ball that they can be what most people would consider good things. Many idols are good things and can be used correctly and they can be good. But the danger becomes when the good thing suddenly becomes a God thing. When we make the good thing our own 90-foot tower made of gold. And suddenly we're worshiping the good thing instead of worshiping the God of that. It's an idol. Friend, you will be confronted by good things, longing to be God things, but that's not the best thing because it's not the Jesus thing. Proverbs 27, 21 says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold. A man is tested by his praise. Don't let good things come out when it needs to be a God thing, God himself driving that praise. Don't let the good things monopolize your heart. Well, we want to identify with these three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which, by the way, if you've not ever studied the difference in their name changes that happens in chapter one, it's worth your time, your homework this week to go back and Read how their names changed from Hebrew, what the Hebrew meaning was, and how they changed it to a, uh, to a Babylonian meaning. It's, it's insightful. But while we want to identify and say, yes, I would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I like Shadrach because that name's cool. kind of sounds like Shaq. The other guys are cool too, but I, yeah, I want to be these guys. I'm going to identify with these guys. Friends, too often we do that, and really we're probably more in line with Nebuchadnezzar wanting to erect our own 90-foot idol. We set those idols that will feed self-worship. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, something's going to happen to all those idols one day. He said, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In that place, there is no deliverance out of that fiery furnace, for that is God's furnace. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, my friends, is the one we are to worship and serve. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, God would establish, he said, his king on his holy hill. As for me, God said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That king would be the true king of kings. His name is Jesus. So what happens next? Well, the music sounds, and all but three bow down to this great idol that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. The accusations begin flying. This Daniel, Daniel certainly, he's not in the story. He wouldn't have bowed down. He doesn't do, uh, in chapter 6, he's got a story of his own where he defends the faith and stands for, for his Lord. But in this moment, we've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They do not bow down to this idol. And the accusations begin flying from some Chaldeans that, that know that these three men have not stood or rather bowed down to the idol. Honoring God and obeying God are not always a popular pathway, my friends, forward as you walk with Christ. There are times that, uh, that even in our day and time, where it's going to test. And it could become pretty, uh, a pretty precarious situation. It's not as bad, certainly, as other parts of the world. 
Okay, not at all. And I don't even want to bring a, a comparison whatsoever. But in our nation, it's just within the last five to six years, we can look back and see that there are bakers who have, have, have been fined for not wanting uh, to do certain things, bake for certain parties and marriages and other situations. We've seen a football coach recently had his case go all the way to the Supreme Court, fired for praying after the football game up in the Northwest. For just praying and thanking God, win or lose, thanking God the same way for the opportunity to coach and change lives. These three men, though, didn't make a big deal of their civil disobedience. They didn't go out with protest signs and they just didn't bow down. They weren't going to do it. And the Chaldeans come and accuse these three men. And they make their loyalty certainly known to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 9. Oh, great King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever, you say. You, King, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of all those instruments shall fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fire, the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews that you have appointed. Oh, so there's a little bit of jealousy for these Chaldeans at work here. These guys, these exiles, these Jews, right? They've come and they've been propped up a little bit. That Their success, they're successful. We see that in chapter 1 as well. And because of their success... They're being propped up in the kingdom. They're being established in higher places of authority. So these Chaldeans were a little jealous that they're getting some success. King, pay attention. They don't pay any attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image. Oh, by the way, in case you forgot, King Nebuchadnezzar, the golden image that you set up, these guys are falling flat on their face. They're not doing anything. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Nebuchadnezzar was told in chapter 2 that the God of Israel is the one who set the times and seasons for the kings. That Yahweh the I Am is the one who would remove and establish kings and kingdoms. And now King Nebuchadnezzar is playing that role. Only set for God. And what he is doing or what he's about to do in verses 13 and 15 What he's going to do is set up a showdown between himself and the God of heaven and earth. It's a showdown that he's going to lose. Look at verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. His furious rage, he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Notice verse 15 again. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? For King Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't know of any. He didn't know of any gods that could deliver what he had threatened, deliver out of and through. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That is where he has now set up the showdown. It's like William Barrett Travis drawing the line in the sand. You with me or you can leave. You stand and fight or you can go. That's the line in the sand King Nebuchadnezzar has just drawn. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands. Friends, that's a question that you need to ask for yourself this morning. 
Who is the God who will deliver me out of my sin? Who is the God that will deliver me? Who is the God that will deliver me? King Nebuchadnezzar's over here saying, okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I triple dog dare you. Who is it? It's an important question. Your answer will tell you where and whom your faith is in. It should be no question for these three The answer was settled. They didn't even have to stand there and say, hey, let's huddle, boys, and get our answer right. They already knew. They were living it every day. Even if they were going to be burnt to a crisp, they refused to bow down to anything or anyone other than the living God of Israel. It's like when Joshua told the Israelites in Joshua chapter 24, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The rest of the story is that God will deliver his people through the fire. Look at verse 16. He will deliver us through the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us and out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Friends, in this world, Jesus has said, we're going to have trouble, but we are to take heart. We have to remember that following Jesus means that we are trusting Jesus even through the fire. Notice that I titled that, God will deliver his people through the fire, not from the fire. There's a difference. To me, when I say from the fire, it means that you're not going in. But there are certainly times, and I think we can all attest to, that we are in the fire. He lets us get in the fire, but he's delivering us. He's with us in the fire. These three faithful men are uh, faithful to God, of course, no doubt about it. We, we, will, they, we will not bow down. They're not saying, and I've heard this before, well, I'm going to bow down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm not bowing down. What? I've heard that. I've heard people say, well, we're going to bow down on the outside. I'll go through the motions. But it doesn't mean anything because my heart's not there. It's not what's on the inside. But the Bible says exactly the different, that what's on the inside comes out on the outside. And so, therefore, you are willing to make that compromise. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there is no compromise. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebi, follows through in verse 17. He follows through. He's going to put him in the fire. Well, actually, look at verse 17. Excuse me. He didn't, he didn't do that until verse 19, but here's 17. This is important. What they say. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fire. If it is so, our God whom we serve is able. He will deliver us. To say God will deliver us takes a great deal of courage and a great deal of trust of what God is going to do. Where do we find that? That kind of courage, that kind of of boldness is found in a deep-seated conviction that God is able. They say it. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. It's that deep-seated conviction that all things are possible with God. 
Listen to what they said. Our God whom we serve is able. That means that they believe, as we should also believe, he has the ability, the power, the strength to make it happen. We too have to believe and be convicted that our God is able. If we believe that our God is not able, then we can have no resurrection. It didn't happen. But our God is able, so says Paul, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He has that power and that ability, but the question for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is verse 18, but if not, be it known to you, king, we will not serve your gods of worship. So it was never a question of God's ability, but rather in this moment, it is a question of God's will. Certainly he is able, but is he going to will it to happen? Even in the face of death, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are determined to stay in the fire. Whether God delivers them or not, they're in it to win it, even in the face of death. But friends, God delivers. Well, what they answer in verse 19 fires up Nebuchadnezzar and literally fires him up. He is furious, and he orders the kiln to be fired seven times hotter than normal. He also orders that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be bound hand and foot and that they be thrown in with their cloaks, certainly just kindling for the fire. So hot, though, was this fire that the mighty men of Nebuchadnezzar die while they're putting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. You know what that tells me? God was with them going in. He was already with them. If these guys are getting close, so close to the, to the furnace that they're dying because it's so hot, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not die when they went in. They fall into the furnace and they fall down. And then in verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. He's amazed and he jumps up in haste and he declares to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, yes, king, true, that's, that's exactly right. And he answered, he said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Not only is the fire cranked up, the mighty men of Nebuchadnezzar have fallen, something unexpected in the fire. The fact is that it astonished the king, it amazed the king. He jumps up in haste to see what it is, and there were Jewish men not burning in the fire, but walking around in the furnace, no longer bound. And there's a fourth one in the fire with them. I personally take that as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Others do not. They say that it's a messenger, an angel of the Lord, and that is okay. Either way, what we know to be true is that the Lord's presence is with them in the fire. That's the miracle. He didn't keep them out of the fire. He got in the fire with them. He met them in the fire, and he brought them out of it. Now, when we look at Scripture, fire has two purposes, well, at least two. There's probably a few more. Certainly it's used for cooking. Yeah, okay. But two spiritual purposes, judgment and refinement. Fire as judgment is clear. You can go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and see that it's used there. You can even look into the future, as we've already heard from the words of Jesus, that it will be used as judgment into the future, the lake of fire, uh, for instance, in Revelation chapter 19. But fire is also used as a refining mechanism. 
a refiner of the heart, the people of God. God will refine his heart, the hearts of his people. So God is said to be in Malachi chapter 3, that refining fire. All right, here's what that says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Paul talks about fire revealing the test of the work of those who are spiritual servants, where only the work founded in Christ will last. Let's look what happens. Nebuchadnezzar is convinced about the God of Israel. He's convinced that the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is real. Certainly, their God delivered them from the fire. Their God answered his question, who will deliver you from my hand and out of the fire? He understood, at least on some level, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the real deal, but he threatened dismemberment toward anyone who would speak ill of this God. That's not exactly the conversion that God was looking for there in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart. It just shows you he wasn't completely changed over yet. Daniel Aiken put it this way about conviction. Conviction is not conversion. You can be convicted of sin and yet still not be converted to follow Christ. Conversion rests solely in complete and total trust in Christ Jesus alone. There is no other who will save you from the fire. There is no one who will save you through the fire. There is no one who has gone before you walking in that fire to bring you out of it other than Christ Jesus If there is no trust, if there's no faith in Christ, there is no conversion, there is no salvation. This is why the demons can believe in God and yet not be saved because they believe he exists and probably have better theology than any of us in this room and yet they lack the trust in Christ. So they will be cast out. Here's how this all points us to Jesus Christ because this is the most important moment. Friends, when we're in trials, the trials reveal the reality of our ever-present Savior that he is with you. I was listening to a podcast this week um, that I frequently listen to entitled For the Church. It's for pastors and ministers and, and even the uh, lay, uh, laymen in the church. And it's produced by Midwestern Seminary. Jared Wilson is the, the lead um, character in that podcast. But it's, a, it's what they call a mailbag um, episode. They usually talk about theology or worship or preaching or other issues that are coming up in the church today. But this is a mailbag where they answer viewer or listeners' questions. And the question, one of the questions they asked was, what words of Jesus do you find most comfort in, especially in the context of ministry? And I listened as I was uh, exercising. I was like, yeah, those, those are great. Yes. Each one gave a list of three or four. I'm like, okay. N- none of them picked mine, which was at the end of uh, the Great Commission, uh, yeah, the Great Commission. I was thinking Great Commandment, but it's Great Commission. Verse 20, where Jesus promises disciples, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I find great comfort in that, in that promise of Jesus. That no matter what trial, fire, test that I'm walking through, I know he's with me. No matter what hardship I have, whether it be in my family or my work, my vocation, my community, Jesus is with me because at the age of eight and growing in in grace and knowledge, in that moment, though, I remember placing my trust in him 
and his promise that he would be with me. And that promise is for you too. Friends, trials reveal where our heart is. Trials reveal. And more than that, it reveals the reality, though, of our ever-present, always-present Savior. And I can say with great confidence that Emmanuel, God with us, was in the furnace that day with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In verse 12 of Exodus chapter 3, listen to these promises. He said, I will be with you, God speaking to Moses, but I will be with you. And this is the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Every step of the way, through the Red Sea, through the plagues, through the Red Sea, through all of those moments, God was with Moses, just like he promised. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, God says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because God has promised, I will be with you. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 and following. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor present, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Christ Jesus has said, I will be with you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and following. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Friends, that means that he is with you. My love, I want to tell you that God will see you through it. Hear the word of God. See it for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hear the promises of Christ Jesus to his disciples and to his church. I will be with you always. His presence. It's about his glory. King Nebuchadnezzar was erecting that great tower for his glory. His glory was pitted against the glory of God. The glory of God is not this building and not this people. The glory of God is God himself. And because of Christ Jesus, we get to be in that glory. So we get to experience that someday. Oh, but I want deliverance from my enemies. Well, sometimes that happens, but more times than not, the glorious truth of this is that He is delivering us through it. He is walking with us through it. God will see you through this life. Trials and tests as you follow Jesus, you love Jesus with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. The hope of glory is in sight at the end and the finish line. We're running to finish and cross that that finish line with all that we've got for his glory and for our good. And the truth is he's running right there with us. His presence has not left. And I want to tell you that if you're in the fire now, Christian, It isn't a fire fire of judgment. If you're in Christ, it's not a fire of judgment. Rather, it's a fire of refinement. God's drawing out those impurities that are not Christ-like. He wants those out, and so he's he's walking you through that fire, drawing those impurities out, just like his word says. He's going to scrape up the dross and draw it out so that it's pure. You are pure. Your heart is pure in Christ. For his glory and your good, God is with you, and he will see you through it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't have died in that moment, ultimately. 
And here's why. They would have been a sacrifice. They would have been a sacrifice for Israel. They would have been a sacrifice for God. They would have been taking the place of another, and that could not happen. For the sacrifice of another belonged to Jesus. Christ Jesus never lifted up his soul to another. He never bowed down to another idol. He never lifted up his hands to anyone else. Perfect in every way, he has paid the price of the fiery furnace as he went to the cross. And now he lives and calls you unto himself. Come and believe and hear the promise of the Lord Jesus that I will be with you through the fire until the end of the age.